Welcome to Gestational Diabetes Club. I'm your host, Helena, dietitian, nutritionist, vegetable enthusiast, and big fan of strong coffee and dark chocolate. Join me here each week to chat about all things gestational diabetes. We'll cover everything you need to know about your nutrition, lifestyle, and all the messy bits in between so that you can feel empowered to optimize your blood sugar, grow a healthy baby, and create sustainable healthy habits to last a whole lifetime without the stress, overwhelm, guilt, or confusion. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you love it here. Hello, welcome back. Now, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Beth from Birth with Beth for this conversation, and I do properly introduce Beth in the episode, but I just wanted to briefly let you know who she is. So, Beth is a midwife, she is a mum, and she is the founder of Power Birth, which is a collection of courses designed to leave you empowered and excited to birth your baby. And I was just thrilled to have this conversation with her because Beth is incredible, and you might already know of her. She has an amazing platform on Instagram. So if you don't follow her, go and do that. And she also has her own podcast called Growing. And she's been on plenty of other podcasts that you might know of as well. So for example, Beyond the Bump and Australian Birth Stories and other places like Physio Laura's podcast. So she might already be a familiar face and name to you. And she is just so well-spoken and so articulate. She's got this really nice, calm and reassuring energy. I just love the way that she talks about things and explains things just so well. So I think you're really going to enjoy listening to this. And I asked you guys what questions you had for Beth on Instagram. So um, in particular, I wanted to know what you want to know about birth and pregnancy and labor and all of that kind of stuff that I can't necessarily answer as a dietitian. And predominantly the questions that I got from you were around induction. So that is really the direction that this conversation takes. But we do go over some other things as well. So at the start of the episode, for example, we talk about the process of the oral glucose tolerance test, just so we're all on the same page about the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. And we talk about um, what an induction is, what types of induction there are, who might need an induction, whether you need to have um, an induction with gestational diabetes, what some pros and cons are, whether you can do anything to bring on labor yourself. So all of those kind of home remedies like dates and raspberry leaf tea, things like that. We talk about all sorts of things. So yes, like I said, I think you're really going to enjoy this chat. So I'm going to stop talking and let you listen in. Enjoy. Well, welcome Beth to the Gestational Diabetes Club. It is so nice to have you on the podcast. I'm actually so excited to have this conversation. And for everybody listening, Beth is a midwife. She's amazing. And she is the founder of Birth with Beth. And she does a whole lot of work around like positive birthing experiences. And I would say Beth is an expert in pregnancy, birth, labor, induction, motherhood as a mom (laughs) herself. So Beth is your go-to. And I really wanted to get Beth onto the podcast because she can talk about all of the things that I can't as a dietitian. Like I don't know everything about like pregnancy and labor and birthing options and things like that. And I know that so many of you out there have questions about that. So, so excited to have Beth onto the podcast and I'm going to get you to introduce yourself. So can you say hello and tell us who you are and what you do? 
Thank you so much. That is definitely a generous uh, introduction to say I'm an expert in, in motherhood. It's um, definitely an exercise of making it up every day, <laughs> um, but it is really, really lovely to be here and share some of the knowledge I have around sort of the other side of experiencing gestational diabetes and how that might shape your um, birth and early postpartum experience. Um, so yeah, as you said, I'm a midwife and my key role at the moment is um, childbirth education and parenting education. My course, Power Birth, and I have another course, Positive Induction, is all about getting families ready for the experience of birth and feeling really confident and equipped with the information and tools to kind of work in collaboration with their care providers towards a positive birth experience, no matter what that looks like. Um, so yeah, it's just a joy to be here. Amazing. Amazing. I love everything that you do. And I think that you help so many women who are probably very, I don't know, fearful or frightened is the right word about like giving birth or maybe just intimidated and a little bit apprehensive about the whole thing. And from what I can tell, you just make the process feel so much less daunting. And it's amazing. Amazing what you do. Thank now, you. today's conversation is mostly going to be geared around induction and when I first invited you onto this podcast, I didn't really have that intention. I didn't know exactly what we were going to talk about, but I've put the I put the call out to my audience on Instagram. So some of you listening might have been involved in submitting questions to me. And a lot of the questions that you had for Beth were around inductions. So that's what we're really going to focus on for this conversation, um, as well as just some other bits and pieces around birth. So I really wanted to keep this conversation around gestational diabetes, how that impacts your birth and induction and all of the things around that. So let's get stuck into some questions. So first of all, I thought we would just start from the really beginning of the process of being diagnosed with gestational diabetes. So Beth, I wanted to know from you, like, can you talk us through the process of somebody actually being tested for and being diagnosed with gestational diabetes and what the role of somebody like you as a midwife would be in that? Yeah, for sure. So I guess the role of the midwife in the gestational diabetes screening is first and foremost to educate you about it. So in the clinic, um, when you go and see a midwife for your pregnancy checkup, at some stage prior to the 24-week mark, we really need to be talking to you about what the um, glucose tolerance test is. That's the name of the uh, diabetes screening test that is routinely offered to all pregnant people in Australia and many other areas of the world. Um, if you are someone that is at an elevated risk of developing uh, gestational diabetes, you might have this test a little bit earlier in pregnancy, um, but typically it is offered between 24 uh, to 28 weeks gestation. And I guess the goal of this test is to see how efficiently your body is metabolizing sugar because this will give us an indication um, as to whether you um, have gestational diabetes or you don't. So the GTT consists of a fasting blood test um, where we check your glucose level when you haven't eaten anything. So I always say to people in the clinic, try to have this booked in for nice and early in the morning so that you can just go to bed, hop up that next day, not eat any brekkie and head in to the clinic um, to get this blood test done. Um, and then that is followed by you drinking a really glucose rich drink. It's like a little 
I would say it's like a concentrated lemonade. It contains 75 grams of sugar. And then we get you to wait around um, and we retest your blood at one hours, one hour after you have drunk that drink and another two hours afterwards um, with the goal of seeing what is happening with your glucose levels over that time period. So it is a little bit of a, um, I guess, one of those tests in pregnancy that lots of mums will be like, oh, so annoying because I not only do I have all of these blood tests, but I also have to wait around. And that sugary drink doesn't always go down super well um, on an empty stomach. Um, so our, our role, I guess, is educating you around what's going to happen, providing you the referral, encouraging you around the timing of when to make sure that this test is done. And then when these um, test results return, a mid wife is typically the one that checks over them and looks at them against the reference ranges to determine whether you have gestational diabetes or you don't. And we always like to be really mindful with the language. It's not a pass fail. You didn't fail your GTT. Um, You are either someone who has developed gestational diabetes as a result of the pregnancy or you haven't. And then I guess our next step in that process is getting you set up with the appropriate support if you do have gestational diabetes. So in the hospital setting, that typically looks like a referral to diabetes education who will get you set up with your glucose monitoring um, and so on and so forth. So our, our role is kind of like steering you in the right direction and then passing you on to the right people if you need it. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like the, yeah, the central person, I suppose, which is very helpful to know, I think. And hopefully all of you listening have already like been through that process and have been diagnosed with GD already. But I think it's just good to have a refresher, especially if you are somebody listening and if you haven't been diagnosed. Um, and also hopefully the midwife is involved in referring you to a dietitian. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That would be amazing if only all hospitals had more access to that. But I also love what you said around the language there. And it's so important that we do really start to change that language, that it's not that you failed the test in any way, just your body just isn't handling the glucose. That's really all that it means. It doesn't mean anything about you. Um, yeah. What I was going to ask you actually is, is that process um, of the diagnosis, is that a phone call or is that an appointment? Like how do you actually find out? It's going to look different at every service and it will depend on when your next appointment is scheduled. So your next appointment these days might be a telehealth um, already. So therefore it would be an appointment. Um, And sometimes it also depends on where you're sitting within those, like within the test results. For example, if someone's came back really really above the reference ranges and it was clear that, um, you know, intervention sooner rather than later to get them a plan and get them feeling supported, that person might get a phone call versus someone who maybe is already booked in for an appointment in a week's time and, you know, mm-hmm. their fasting glucose was slightly elevated. Um, that person, you know, might just sit down in that appointment and we'll discuss their results with them. So it really just depends on your model of care and the hospital's kind of processes. Okay. Actually, that makes so much sense. That's something that I have wondered about because I know that it definitely varies from person to person and whoever I speak to, but I think it's good to be prepared, especially like I said, if you're listening and you haven't been diagnosed, but you're a little bit apprehensive about the whole thing, hopefully that just gives you an idea of what the process might look like and then how you might find out. So thank you. It's good to know. Yeah. But let's change tack a little bit because you probably have already got gestational diabetes if you're listening to this. 
So a key question that I wanted to ask you is what the birthing options look like for a woman or a person with GD. And does that does that change based on somebody's status of having GD or not? So I guess the key one that uh, most people with GD will be aware of and definitely will be asking questions about is that there is an increased chance that you will be offered an induction. And I, when I say offered, I'll add the caveat of offered and encouraged um, to have an induction if you particularly um, if you're relying on insulin or if you've had trouble controlling your blood glucose level during pregnancy. Um, And then I guess the second thing that will differ slightly is that we would be monitoring your glucose level quite closely in labor. So depending again on, you know, what's happening for you in with your sugars and what your treatment has looked like, um, we will typically be looking at your glucose every couple of hours just to make sure that you're, you know, coping with the stress of labor and that it's not doing anything too funky to your sugars and and therefore to bub. but those are the key differences. Other than that, it really shouldn't influence, you know, your options for birth. It's not like you have to have an epidural or you definitely can't use the shower or anything like that. Often it is just a simple case of um, discussion around the timing of your birth. And then once you're in labor, keeping a closer eye on your blood glucose. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if somebody's blood sugar was really well controlled, would they essentially just have the same birthing options as somebody else without GD? Hopefully, yes. So it's a little bit of a, I guess, um, it's a complex conversation because what we are still seeing in practice is that some care providers are um, encouraging what we would consider like a routine induction around 38, 39 weeks based solely on the fact that someone has gestational diabetes. Um, but actually, you know, the recommendations from the World Health Organization and other industry bodies such as NICE in the UK and ICE, um, all of those guidelines and the available evidence suggests that there is no, it's not necessary to induce you on the back of having gestational diabetes alone. So what we mean by that is that if you are otherwise well, otherwise healthy, there is no clear complication to your pregnancy. It is simply that at 28 weeks, you found out you had gestational diabetes. And since then you've made some small adjustments to diet and lifestyle to keep those sugars within normal ranges, there is no need for us to be inducing you um, any earlier than we would offer an induction to someone without gestational diabetes. So more towards that 41-week mark. The reason that I say it's complex is that that is not always what we're seeing in practice and it is very care provider dependent. And I guess that's why there is a perception that once you get diagnosed with GD, some of your birthing options will change. That makes a lot of sense, I think, and it is exactly what I've been hearing from lots of people that I work with, that they're they're not necessarily receiving that advice that is in line with those guidelines. And that can be a really tricky spot to be in if you want to advocate for yourself, but your care providers like hospitals might even just have different policies and things like that that aren't necessarily reflecting those guidelines. And so you've got to just have those open conversations with your care providers, I think, is the best way to go about that. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. And always feeling confident to, I know it's really hard and so much easier said than done. Um, but we have to reframe and remember that everything is that's being recommendation recommended is a recommendation and it is an offer. It is not someone telling you, you must do this or you must do that. And so hopefully through conversations like this and sharing of resources, we can get, um, people with GD and anyone who's preparing to birth their baby into a space where they feel confident to say to their care provider, can we talk about this? Can you please refer me to current up-to-date evidence that is guiding your recommendation? Talk to me about the the specific concerns you have for me. So hopefully moving away from this idea of routinely doing things um, and just feeling confident in the knowledge that it is your right to ask questions and it is up to you whether you say yes or no after hearing all of the information that's been shared with you. Yeah, love it. Let's talk about what induction actually is because I've got some more questions about it and, you know, I think there are lots of questions that have come through about induction, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So, can you talk us through what an induction actually is? For sure. So, an induction of labour is whenever your care provider does anything to begin the labour rather than allowing your body to go into labour on its own that is considered an induction. So that can look a few different ways, but at a kind of top line understanding of what induction of labor is, it is anything, whether it's a procedure, medication, intervention that we do. um, And when I say we, I mean like midwives, doctors, maternity care providers to bring on your labor, as opposed to what we would say is a spontaneous labor um, where your body and your baby decide when they're ready. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk through the different types of induction as well? Like what might somebody expect if they are going in for an induction and when would it occur? Yeah, look, the timing of induction is going to be so different for everyone because when we um when you are to when you arrive at an induction as a pregnant person, it's because there's some reason to believe that bub is better on the outside than on the inside. And what I always like to say is that sliding scale looks different for everyone. And when you do talk to your care provider and you ask them for the statistics and the recommendation that are kind of guiding the recommendation, it's also important to know that the numbers are just numbers and the how you feel about risk is going to be um, really individual and really unique. We call it meaningful risk. So you could hear a statistic and go, that feels really unacceptable to me. I want to have my induction at, you know, 38 weeks. I want this baby out. And I might hear a statistic and go, okay, no, I'm really comfortable with the, the fact that that's really low and I might want to just wait until my baby arrives. So it's also kind of good to know that the timing of when you have an induction is often a reflection of what is going on for you on an individual level and how do you feel about the potential risks or chances of certain outcomes. But typically, I mean, the most common reason in Australia that someone will be induced is because they are what we call overdue or post-dates. I don't like the term overdue. It's like you're not a library book, Um, (laughs) but, you know, you've gone beyond your due date and there's discussions around, you know, the safety of carrying on. Um, And so typically the most inductions that we see in Australia take place somewhere between 40 and 42 weeks. Mm-hmm. And which I, I think we mentioned like that that would maybe change if you do have gestational diabetes, that For that sure. might be earlier and around that like maybe 38 weeks I think is typically Th- thrown around. 
So really good point with within the context of GD that it probably is happening more around the 38, 39 week mark if there are concerns beyond just the presence of gestational diabetes, if that makes sense. Um, But just sorry to circle back to your actual question, um, just about the different types of induction. So we have a few different ways to get labor going. For most people, we need to do something called cervical priming, or um, in other words, just preparing your cervix for the event of labor. Lots of people um, don't actually know that the cervix is like a long, strong structure. It's really hard and firm and often towards the back, more towards your tailbone um, before full term and before contractions. And so the earlier phases of a labor, of an induction of labor are all about getting that cervix to be softer, um, ready to open, to shorten. And this is a process we call effacement. And we can do this through uh medication. So like a gel that goes inside the vagina and sits up around the cervix. Um, We've got a sort of pessary version of that medication, like a little paper tampon that again, it sits inside the vagina right at the back, um, kind of tucks behind your cervix. Um, Or we have something called a balloon catheter. um, And this is a tube that would actually go through the cervix and then a small balloon of water is blown up on either side. And rather than medications doing the softening, ripening and shortening process. It is more about um, that mechanical pressure starting to prepare the cervix. So that's kind of, I would say for most people who require a induction of labor, that is step one is cervical priming. Step two is really about um, being able to break the waters around bubs. So this is again, an internal examination with an instrument called, we call it an amni hook. Some Places will use something slightly different, but this is the most common one. Um, And a midwife or doctor will actually try to go through the cervix, which has now been ripened thanks to that first step, um, inside and break the water around Bubby. And then once that's finished, then we can put in, you know, the cannula and put up the drip. So get those contractions started with um, that synthetic version of the hormone oxytocin to bring on the actual contractions. So it's quite a quite a varied and lengthy um, process. It's not as simple as um, one, you know, one thing will send you off into labor. Certainly for some people, because the medications are hormonal based and we all respond to hormones differently, um, for some people, they will not need all three steps, but for many people, they do. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I've got so many questions. I find this so interesting because I'm not a mum. I've never given birth. And so I've never been through this world like many of you listening probably. And so I find this really, really interesting. And I've got a couple of questions. So how would you decide like what method of induction to use based on the person? Like, because you mentioned there's a few different ways to achieve that like cervical ripening. So what would like, what would be the decision-making process there? Yeah. So I guess two key things. The first one would be as basic as what is in stock at the hospital. What are their current procedures? Like often it's simply just that this is what's available. So this is favored as the process at the moment, particularly when it comes down to pessary versus the gel. It's often just about what's the most common at the hospital? What have they had the most success with? um, And therefore what you know, what they will typically use as a start point. But then the second thing is considering, well, why are we inducing you and what 
role does that play in, you know, how we want to take care of you and your baby? So, for example, if you are being induced because there's been concerns about the well-being of your baby um, and we're not actually sure if they will cope with the process of induction, and I should have mentioned at the start, whenever we induce you, we also have to monitor bubs heart rate and well-being quite closely because we are doing something to you. So induction and and monitoring your baby are kind of like a package deal. Um, this is not a process that is being driven by your body. We are interfering and therefore we have a responsibility to make sure that both mom and baby are okay. Um, so if we're inducing you because we've got really quite um, large concerns about the well-being of your baby, we're not sure how well they'll cope with the stress of labour it's unlikely that someone will put in a gel that then can't be removed and you're probably more likely to be guided towards a balloon catheter, for example, because then if, you know, your body or your baby doesn't respond well to the induction process and we think we need to pause and just take a breath, we have full control and we can take out that balloon catheter versus a gel that has already been absorbed into the tissue. So I guess what I'm saying is there's um, unique assessment of your circumstances and your clinician can guide you around that. And then there's also just logistical stuff like, you know, what do we have on hand? That makes a lot of sense. And my next question was, how long could you expect each stage to be? Like once you've had that first step, then would that be like a few hours, like days? Like what's the process for, I mean, it might vary person to person, but can you just kind of give us an overview? Definitely varies, but it's good to talk about the fact that an induction typically takes a number of days um, because the medication, so say if you came in and we gave you some medication to ripen your cervix, typically that medication stays in for like six to 12 hours, depending on which kind of one we're using and so on and so forth and availability of staff to check, come and check how it's going. Um, and then you might need a second dose of that medication, which might then be another six hours. Um, so for example, we might already even just be looking at one day in hospital just for the priming phase. Um, and then the, hopefully once we break your waters, you're going to be either in a birth suite already, or you're going to be transferred to a birth suite. Sometimes there can be a delay. For example, you know, we are ready to break your waters. Um, however, the birth suite is heaving and there's no bed. So you might have some waiting around, some like bed shuffling to do, but hopefully we're going to be able to take you into the labor area where we can care for you one-on-one -on -one because once we break your waters and we start the drip, you should be receiving one-to-one -one midwifery care. And then once you're on the drip, you might be on the drip for a number of hours, 12 plus in some cases, not all, but definitely in some, um, because your body still has to do the work of dilating, moving baby down, um, all of that kind of stuff. And it can take us a little while to find what I call it, like the oxytocin sweet spot. In my course, Positive Induction, I talk you through this, how, like I said, these are hormonal medications. We all respond to hormones differently. For some people, they might need a really low dose of the infusion and they will be having like really rhythmic contractions. Other people will be on the maximum dose and barely responding. So there's a huge variation which will influence how long that step is. But particularly if it's your first baby, there's a good chance that you'll be on the syntocin and drip, you know, for 12, sometimes more hours. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually about to ask, like, if it would vary typically depending on whether it's your first or subsequent baby. So it sounds like it would. Definitely. Second second babies tend to be a little bit quicker to join us, which is like both a um, intense experience, but also mm-hmm. a relief to many second time mums. Um, third babies tend to be like a wild card. <laughs> they can either be really quick or, or a little bit longer. Um, but certainly for your first labor and birth, when your body hasn't done this, your cervix has never softened before, it's never opened, your ligaments haven't stretched that way. We expect it to take longer because your body has a whole bunch of work to do. So interesting. What I want to ask about is the cascade of interventions. That's a term that gets used a lot. A lot of people are probably familiar with that phrase. So what is the cascade of interventions? What, you know, what are people worried about? Yeah. So I guess, like I just mentioned with uh, the example of being induced and constant monitoring of your baby, Whenever we do one thing to interfere with the organic process of birth, there tends to be a knock-on effect because there need some things are like a package deal, and with every every layer of intervention that we add, that comes with its own add-ons and its own potential complications risks, outcomes, that sort of thing. So the cascade of intervention just is a term that we use to describe that phenomenon of that knock-on effect. So a good and kind of like classic example, and I really want to stress that this is just an example. It is not, I'm not here to say like, if you choose this, this is definitely what's going to happen. This is just an example of how a cascade of intervention might play out would be potentially um, someone is being induced um, because of the intensity of the induction, they elect an epidural early on. Um, The epidural causes a slowing of contractions or, um, you know, we've we've lost that kind of like mobility and movement, which can be really beneficial in labour. And they have a prolonged labour potentially, and then their baby might you know, become distressed and it's difficult for them to push because the um, epidural has altered their urgency and and that pressure in their pelvic floor. And then because of that, um, you know, instruments might be used during the pushing phase, such as forceps or vacuum. Um, So that's kind of an example of how sort of one thing led to the other, led to the other. And the difficult thing about cascades of intervention is there's actually no way of knowing whether it would have happened anyway. So that's the difficulty there. Um, There's there's nothing to know, you know, whether that mum would have gone in, whether she had an induction or not, and eventually elected an epidural and the same events would have happened without that sort of induction trigger, for example. But what we do know is like statistically speaking, the more interventions we use and the more we tend to kind of like mess with the organic um, way of things, we see this kind of like layering of intervention and an increased chance of experiencing outcomes like you know, tears, unplanned cesarean birth, postpartum hemorrhage, admission to the neonatal ICU. Um, And I think it's really important when we talk about the cascade of intervention not to do it through a place of like threat or fear um, because intervention can be wonderful. Like we are so lucky that we have intervention, um, particularly for some of your listeners, like some people listening will really need that induction and it will be really warranted and they will make that decision with like in the confidence that they have with their care provider 
based on their clinical circumstances. So I think it's so important that we don't just paint intervention with this brush of like terrible or bad. We're actually really, really lucky to have it. We just have to go in with our eyes wide open and know that it's it's not necessarily a standalone decision because I think that's where women get really disappointed when they look back and they're like, I wish someone told me. Like I didn't know that, you know, epidurals were associated with increased chance of using instruments or I didn't know that instrumental birth was associated with a higher chance that I'd have a a bad tear or so on and so forth. So it's just about being honest and having open discussions so that if you do choose to use interventions or you need to use interventions, it's it's coming from an informed place of informed decision-making. Does that make sense? I could not agree more. And the way that I think about it is actually really similar to the way that I talk about and think about using insulin for GD as like a little bit of a parallel. Like what I talk about all the time is the fact that it's not a failure if you need Mm -hmm. insulin, for example, and that we are, like you said, so, so fortunate and lucky in this country um, and in lots of developed countries to have access to those sorts of things because, you know, we are saving lives at the Mm. end of the day with these sorts of interventions sometimes. And so this is not Beth and I like here to push inductions or insulin or anything like that onto people, but being, like you said, like being informed about your um, options, your choices, Mm -hmm. being informed about like what can happen, like everybody should be treated as an individual and should be treated with the best evidence and how that relates to them. But I think what I wanted to achieve with this conversation is to just reduce some of the fear and the unknowns around this type of thing, because the more knowledge you have, the more empowered you can feel and confident you can feel going into that. So yes, there are pros and cons of inductions and perhaps you can talk us through like what those pros and cons are. But I think that you're absolutely right in saying that like we are really fortunate to have access to these medical interventions and also that being induced, say, doesn't necessarily need to change the positive birthing experience that you have. Like you can have a birth experience that is positive, whatever method of birth you end up going down. And that should be a collaborative decision that you make with your team, not somebody deciding for you. That's so, so like, so bang on what I was going to say. And just like coming back to that idea of intervention, not being inherently bad in all of the research around positive birth experiences and by contrast, um, traumatic birth experiences, it's interesting because it's not, it's often not about the physical events of the labor. It's about how that mum was made to feel. Mm -hmm. So whether she felt supported in her decision, whether she was um, given all of the information in a really clear, concise, non-judgmental way, um, and whether she felt really safe and supported throughout the events of the birth, no matter what that looked like, those are the things that shape a positive birth experience. It's not about it looking a certain way. It's about how you feel throughout it. And when we look at, by contrast, traumatic birth experiences, it's often when mothers feel really disrespected, that their voices aren't heard, that they feel alone, unsupported. And that is what we really need to um, kind of like reframe you know, a positive birth versus a potentially traumatic birth. Um, And when we look at the research, that's what we kind of see. So it is such a big topic and it's really Mm -hmm. meaty. Um, But I guess that's why I have a course called Positive Induction. It's not about saying like, yay, induction is going to be great for everyone. It's just 
It's just about saying if you are someone that arrives at the decision to have an induction and you have made that informed choice with your care provider, here are some tools, here are some strategies to get your head in the game to make you feel really excited about what's ahead, to know that your baby's waiting for you on the other side and to feel confident in this choice that you have made. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that informed choice is always just the most important thing, like regardless of what circumstances it is, like regardless of whether we're talking about birth or nutrition or anything under the sun, informed choice is the best thing. It's just a bit like being able to know what your options are, know what the pros and the cons are, what the risks are, what the evidence says, like all of that so that you can come to your own decision and then you can work within whatever choice you make to make it a positive experience. Um, Yeah, I think that's so important to recognize. Now, I guess we've kind of talked about it, but I just, I do want to ask you quickly, like, what would you say the pros and the cons of induction are? Look, I think the big pro just to begin is like we keep coming back to, if you are someone who is who is experiencing complications in pregnancy and it becomes evident that continuing the pregnancy is becoming increasingly unsafe due to the complications that you're experiencing, whatever they may be, whether it's GD or something else, and whether the, you know, if the health of you or your baby um, is becoming threatened, then the huge pro is that we have this tool and this, this I guess, package of tools to get you into labor, to get your baby out on the outside where we can take care of them and end the pregnancy so that your body can also stop being under that stress. So I think that on like a really, um, when we really consider why induction exists in the first place, that is why it exists to get those babies out where we think they are better out than in. Um, it is time for them to be on the outside. It is no longer safe to continue moving forward. The The considerations that we need to um, be really honest about is that we know that induction doesn't just, it's not an on-off switch where we go, cool, we've induced you and that's the end of the story. We have good evidence now to show that induction does tend to lead to higher rates of things like instrumental birth, epidural use, um, postpartum hemorrhage, NICU admission. Um, And we need to balance those potential, the chance of those things happening against the chance of something bad happening if you continue the pregnancy without intervention. So the pro and con list is going to look different for everyone. um, Mm. Because if you're 39 weeks, otherwise healthy, maybe you've had GD, but you're in really good shape, like your pregnancy looks great, nothing other than the initial diagnosis of GD has been untoward, that list of potential complications associated with inductions is going to look quite long compared to the chance of something awful happening in your pregnancy Um, versus if you're 39 weeks, you've got gestational diabetes and suddenly your blood pressure is elevated, you're having trouble with um, sugar control. Um, there's evidence of abnormal growth for your baby. Um, you know, the list is going to look really different. So the pros and cons always need to come back to, you know, individualized approach. They're going to look different for everybody. Yeah. Love it. Gosh, there's so many directions I could take this conversation, but I really want to touch on about like the growth of the baby and whether there's any abnormal growth patterns Mm. and a really big question is how how accurate are growth scans? Yeah, it's tricky. So we know that around 70% of growth scans will accurately predict fetal weight, but I want to use 
I want to unpack this term accurate because mm-hmm. accuracy in the context of a growth scan, particularly a third trimester growth scan, um, so beyond 28 weeks, the term accurate encompasses plus or minus 10%. So 70% of growth scans performed will accurately predict the weight of a baby plus or minus 10%. And that is deemed accurate. But when we look at, you know, the weight of a baby, 10% is quite significant. If you're told, okay, we think your baby is four kilos at 39 weeks or whatever, that baby could be anywhere between 3.6 and 4.4 kilos. And and in terms of um, babies, newborn babies, that's quite a big um, quite a big swing and in terms of like a vaginal birth of those babies. Um, so it's it's hard. And then I guess the other 30% can be uh, are inaccurate, so beyond plus or minus 10%. They are quite off. Um, mm-hmm. So it's tricky. It is tricky. And growth scans and glycemic control tend to be the two key clinical factors in gestational diabetes in those later weeks that will potentially influence whether an induction of labour is offered or not. Um, So it is tricky to know that one of those things is not always accurate, but equally it's kind of the best we've got. So it's a a really tricky one. Yeah, better than not being able to measure, I suppose, and to again, just to be able to have that informed choice about whether it is a good option to need to go down the induction route or not. I'm going to move on to some questions that came from the audience. And so I wanted to know, is it possible to avoid induction and what options do you have? And again, I want to caveat this question with the fact that we don't always need to be avoiding inductions, right? Like we can make it a positive experience regardless of what your birthing choice is, as we just discussed. And sometimes it is going to be the best choice for you, your baby and your pregnancy. Yeah. So I guess like the best possible way to avoid induction is is to say no, is to decline if that is your choice. If after hearing all of the information, um, going home, sitting with it, considering it for you and your baby and you just think, no, this this isn't how I want to proceed, you can say no. It is absolutely your choice to accept or decline a recommendation. Um in terms of other like things that potentially will reduce the chance of of requiring an induction in the first place, um, there's not a lot of evidence to support those sort of like quote unquote natural induction methods that you'll see floating around the internet. But we do have a couple of things with some small but reassuring studies um, out there. So one of those things is the consumption of dates. So date fruit, consuming six um, six pieces of date fruit a day um, from 36 weeks onwards. And look, I don't know, could they potentially wreak havoc for your sugars? I'll jump in because you know what, this is um, really timely because I had a client ask me about this just like this week. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to take it upon myself and look through that evidence again, see if there's anything updated since last time I looked at it. Because yeah, it's a it's a common question that I'll get from my clients because she came back to me and saying her midwife has said, yep, have the like six or seven dates a day when she gets to a certain point in her pregnancy. And she was like, what, is this going to wreck my blood sugars? Like, what should I do? And when you look at the research, it's actually a pretty big quantity that you need to be consuming. It's like 
70 grams or something because you could get big dates or you can get small dates. So it's good to look at the actual grams. And you're right, like the research actually is encouraging. Most of the studies that have been done are supportive of this helping to soften the cervix and sometimes like shorten some of the stages of labor Mm. as well. Um, But in terms of the carbohydrate content and like concentrated sugar content of that quantity of dates, it's equivalent to like three slices of bread. So (laughs) obviously that's going to do some stuff to your blood sugar, depending on you and your glycemic control. Um, I mean, there's ways to do it. There's ways that you could incorporate it if you wanted to. It would really be person dependent. So I would never say like you have to rule that out as a hard no with gestational diabetes. But in saying that, like, please work with someone to know how to incorporate it safely for you and your blood sugar. Um, And also be mindful of of the fact that we actually don't have research on people with gestational diabetes, like doing that intervention. So we actually don't know if it changes anything, like if it's harmful, if it's positive, if it's negative, if it's even beneficial. Mm -hmm. And the research that's been done in general is small, like it's not great quality I would argue that just reading through it, um, sometimes it's like, well, there's probably some real confounding factors there. Um, So, yeah, maybe there's some cool properties of those foods, but at the end of the day, like it's early days with that research, I would say. So take it with a grain of salt. If you want to give it a go, talk to your care team about it so that you can do it safely so that your blood sugars don't go completely out of whack. But, yeah, sorry, I just hijacked. No, 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 I completely agree because I think the other thing is if your goal is to avoid an induction, you probably, as someone with GD, what's even more important than trialling these potential tools that might have benefit, your biggest tool for avoiding induction is maintaining great glycemic control. So, you know, that – that would probably be my priority. If I was someone with GD, I'd say with the potential that these are going to wreak havoc on my sugars and the unknowns around whether it's even beneficial for someone like myself, I probably just want to focus instead on maintaining my sugars so that if I am offered an induction on GDM alone, I can come back and say, well, actually, I've got really great glycemic control. And the evidence says that that is not an in, not a reason for induction alone. So just always like I know it probably sounds annoying because people want answers, but it's always about the individual and nothing in birth is black and white. Um, there is just always, always shades of grey within every single thing. Interestingly, like again, it's probably similar level of research um, in terms of sample size and design and it certainly needs more um before we can say it absolutely helps but acupuncture um some studies have shown that um engaging in acupuncture in the final weeks of your pregnancy can contribute to cervical ripening reduced chance of being you know requiring um an induction um but realistically like there's not a lot of things that we can do to induce spontaneous labor in terms of the evidence it's very very patchy um and so it is a little bit of a tricky spot when you find yourself in that waiting game yeah it's so interesting i've i've heard like a lot of anecdotal stuff about acupuncture actually so i find that fascinating and i really hope that we get more evidence about these um what would we call them? Well, like alternative therapies, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It'd be cool to get more research about them. But like you said, for now, it's um it's still pretty low quality and hard to give mm. any definitive answers. Another one that I see a lot 
the tea is it raspberry raspberry leaf tea raspberry leaf tea yeah, yeah look the the quality of evidence and and coming back to what you said before about like the volume of that you would need to consume mm-hmm. um there's a lot of unknowns there but what is agreed upon is that um more or less there's no evidence of harm so if you want to go like it's it's one of those things where if you outside of glycemic control, if you are someone that wants to go and eat the dates and get the acupuncture and pour yourself a raspberry leaf tea every evening, um, as a way of mentally preparing for birth, feeling like you're doing something to prepare your body, that's okay. Like I always like to say that that there's no um this is not us saying like don't do it. It's just ridiculous because I do think that when it comes to therapies like these, they're poorly researched and we can't ignore years and years and years and years of women and birth workers anecdotal evidence. Like there's obviously a reason that it's made its way into the birth space. And so I always want to be careful not to just reject it just because we don't have any formal studies to support it. But in terms of like sitting in a health professional's seat in, and you ask like, what can I be doing? We do have to come back to what's the available evidence you know, how should that influence what we're um, we're going to do in these final weeks? So provided that you haven't been told, no, it's not for you, like with the dates, if you're working with a dietitian, I just always say like, you're free to do some of these things or none of these things. It's really up to you. And managing expectations as well. Like this is not a miracle thing that's going to, yeah, like prevent yeah. anything or bring on your labor, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So if someone is going in for an induction, that's what they've decided. They've had all the conversations with their care team. How can somebody prepare themselves for that? Yeah. So I guess there's a lot of things that we can do. Um, I go through this in depth in the positive induction course. Um, But just, I think the main thing is understanding the process. So something that I see a lot in the hospital setting is people come in for their induction and there's a distinct misunderstanding that they think that they're going to meet their baby that day. So they might rock up at like 9am and they're like, I can't believe I'm going to birth today. And for the majority of people that arrive for their induction, that is just not the case. So understanding that it is, like I said, a multi-step process, that there might be some waiting around, that we might need to bring with us ways to relax and, you know, um, I always say like bring Netflix with you, bring a book, like bring a podcast, bring some food from home so that you don't feel as impatient, like you're just sitting in a hospital bed waiting for, you know, things to happen. And then the second thing would be, and and again, I, I go through this, but really being clear about your intention of working with pain um, because with an induction, one of the features of induction is that sometimes it can feel a little bit more fast and intense than a spontaneous labor. So if you're someone that goes into it just going, I'm just going to see what happens or take each hour as it comes, it can be quite a shock and quite confronting when suddenly the contractions are intense and, and really ramping up. And if you haven't already researched ahead of time and learnt about what tools can I use? What's available to me? How do I work with this pain? Have I done some mindset stuff around, you know, safety and strength and feeling good and positive in your body? That can also be a bit of a shock. So I'd say those are the two biggest things of just really understanding the process, setting your expectations, and also having clear ideas about how you intend to work with the intensity of labor. Yeah. And you know what? I think I would add to that, not that I'm an expert in this area whatsoever, but just 
it, like I'm still making it a really positive experience, like you just said, but thinking about all of those other maybe more fluffy sorts of things, like how you do want your birth to look in terms of like, who do you want to be there? Like, do you want music and like, do you want it to be dark? Like all of those things that can make a difference environmentally. And you might have more tips and strategies around that. And you probably do talk about it in your courses, but, Mm. you know, still making it how you want your birth to look within the constraints of what needs to be done medically, I suppose. But yeah, do you have any thoughts around that? Absolutely. Like, I think that there's such a misconception that we have to just throw out the list of birth preferences when we add induction to the plan. And it's just not the case. Like, we can absolutely have that oxytocin rich environment of low lighting and music and support people and access to water and moving around. Like, those things might have previously been on your birth plan and you might be feeling apprehensive about, well, what does this medical intervention mean for that? And certainly there are a few tweaks. Like like I mentioned, there will be monitoring of your baby constantly, so we need to navigate that. Um, there will be additional medications, one of which is going through a drip, so we just need to kind of work that in. But that's also what your midwives are there for. It's not like we go, oh, okay, you're having medical intervention, so we just switch off our midwife brain. We are there to guide you and set up that environment to you know, nourish your your natural oxytocin too, not just the medical one. So absolutely couldn't agree more. Actually, one question on that. If you're needing monitoring and especially like the heart rate monitoring and whatnot, does that mean that water is out of the question? It's going to depend on the hospital, but most monitors are waterproof and certainly the shower shouldn't be off limits. Sometimes the bath is... For, yeah, sometimes they're more um, adverse to people getting in the bath who have any risk factor under the sun, um, mm. but the shower should never be removed as an option. Yeah, great, because I hear, again, not that I've been through this, but I hear a lot of people say that water can be so beneficial for that pain tolerance mm. and that can really help to get in the shower. So that's really cool to know. And what's the biggest mistake you would say you see people make when it comes to inductions or birth in general? Look, I wouldn't call it a mistake as such, but I just think we need to come back to this moving away from this idea of routine. Like if someone just says to you, oh, it just is happening because we just have to induce you just because you're 39 weeks and you have um, have gestational diabetes. For some people that will be really, really warranted and for others it will just be kind of like an unnecessary um routine intervention that's being, you know, put placed mm-hmm. on them because they've been lumped in this pile. So I think it's not a mistake because it's not on, it's not your fault if you don't do this, but just going in with a willingness to have a conversation and say, can you talk me through the recommendation and the current evidence? Can you explain why you think that that's the best possible route for me and my baby? And then just something like little afterbirth is just remembering if you do have GD, um, your little one will be at a slightly higher chance of becoming hypoglycemic. So when they drop their blood sugar after birth, and one of the best things you can do to prevent this um, is just to keep your baby skin on skin after the birth. So that's when you have your naked baby against your bare chest, you cover yourselves with a nice warm blanket. Um, It's not the hours after birth, particularly with a little bubby of a GD mum. It's not the time to have them being passed around the room from visitor to visitor or like swaddled and taking photos because thermoregulation, or in other words, just keeping your baby warm is one of the biggest things that will help them maintain their blood glucose level 
So our goal for those early postpartum hours is just to give you, like really wrap you up in a space where you can keep your baby skin to skin, enjoy those cuddles, keep them warm and feed them opportunistically. And the cuddles and the photo shoot and the swaddled and being passed around, that can all happen later when we're comfortable and confident that your little one is maintaining their sugars. So that's just like a little midwife tip for Mm. after the birth is just hold on to those skin to skin snuggles because they're more valuable than you know. Actually, yeah, there was a question that came in about like, will your baby be taken away after giving birth to monitor their sugar or will you be more likely to be able to have that skin to skin? Definitely want to keep them skin to skin. So the only time a baby will be taken away is if there's considerate concern for their well-being. So if their blood glucose level is persistently low or they need help with their breathing or anything like that, then obviously we might need to admit them to the neonatal ICU for some intensive care. But for most babies born to GD mums, all that happens is that they come out, we put them skin to skin, we keep them warm. Um, It's really important to try to offer a breastfeed within the first hour or so if you can, whether that's antenatally expressed colostrum or just being opportunistic with that first feed. And, And I say feed, but it could be breastfeeding or however you intend to feed. And then all that would happen is that their blood sugar level will be checked. Um, And this is just a little like the same that you check your blood sugar with the little lancet into your finger. We have little ones that go into their heel. We get a drop of blood. We check their glucose level. And over the course of roughly around three, four hours, basically, we want to do it before a feed um, three times in a row. Um, If they maintain a blood glucose level over 2.4, then we just stop. And we go, okay, there's no evidence that this baby is in need of any intervention. We just want to make sure that they're being fed regularly, that they're being kept warm. And obviously we have a low threshold for checking their sugars again if they seem shaky or unwell. Um, but no, your baby should absolutely be able to stay with you if you're a GD mum. We would never want to just routinely take babies off for blood sugar monitoring. We can do that while you are holding them. In fact, it's really nice if we do it while you're holding them because it's nice comfort for them. Yeah. And will mum's blood sugar be checked too? Typically, yeah. So um, just depending on whether your um, your what was happening for you in pregnancy, um, it might be just for the next 48 hours and then a, a formal follow-up GTT at like six weeks or it'll just depend on like what's happening for you and what your sugars have looked like. Um, but, yes, we do check for a little bit and then hopefully we can stop. Yeah. And everyone, please do that six-week check. Please, yeah, please. Do it. you've got to do it. You've got to do it. Um, okay. God, there's so many questions I could ask because I also, I could ask about breastfeeding and all that kind of stuff, but we'll save it. We'll save that for another <laughs> we'll day. Save it. Yeah. So what is your biggest piece of advice for somebody who might be, like I said at the start, apprehensive about birth, fearing an induction, like anxious about the whole thing, unsure, just feeling stressed? What would you say? Honestly, hand on heart, I think the biggest thing that I want to impress on anyone preparing to birth is just to have a bit of trust in your body. Like I always say in my workshops, remember that you woke up this morning and you didn't have to actively grow your baby. Your body is doing incredible work. You didn't wake up and think, I'm going to work on the brain today and I might work on the tummy tomorrow. Your body knows what to do in terms of birth of, of growing your baby. You don't get to 40 weeks and it just suddenly forgets. 
it doesn't go, I don't know about this next part. You do know what you're doing. Your body is stronger than you could ever imagine. And just because you have GD, like we're going full circle now, but your body didn't fail at pregnancy. It's a feature of your pregnancy. It's a little um, blip that meant that this one particular feature of pregnancy your body struggled with, but you have successfully grown your baby every single day. So put a little bit of faith in your body and in yourself that you know how to birth your baby. Amazing advice. I think absolutely everybody with GD, I just think you're amazing. You're so incredible. Like it's Mm. such a tricky, challenging journey. And you're clearly like, if you're listening to this podcast, you're being so proactive about learning what you can about gestational diabetes and absorbing information, like being empowered, informed, and just doing the best that you can for your baby and their health and for your health. So you are amazing. You're incredible. You're a superstar. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. You'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, thank you so much, Beth. You have been so generous because I've asked you like a million questions. It has been so beneficial. I think everyone's going to absolutely love listening to this chat. I'm going to enjoy listening back to this chat because I think I will learn something listening back to it again. There's so many pearls of wisdom that have come from you today. So can't thank you enough for coming on and please share with us where everybody can go to find out more about you and find out more about what you do. For sure. So I'm over on Instagram at birthwithbeth underscore. That is um, where I share a lot of pregnancy information, birth advice, a little bit of postpartum stuff, a little sprinkling of motherhood as I, like I said at the top, just making it up as I go. Um, Definitely come over, say hi, feel free to slide into my DMs. And then if you want to learn more about the more formal offerings of mine, so my courses, Power Birth and Positive Induction, um, you can go to www.powerbirthcourse.com.au and all of the information for each of those courses is there. Amazing. And I love your Instagram. I love following along with updates on Poppy. That's your daughter. <laughs> and she's so cute. Everybody go and follow. Beth, just for that, just for like moments with Poppy. She's yummy. So love it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much. And thanks for listening. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation. I certainly enjoyed having it. And I really want to know from you, I want to know if you enjoy these interview style podcast episodes with these types of guests, because, you know, I think that it's important because a lot of the time you do have questions about gestational diabetes that I can't necessarily answer within my scope of practice as a dietitian. So I want to make sure I can answer your questions and do them justice. But I want to know if you actually do enjoy these sorts of episodes. And if you do, I will make sure that I reach out to many more amazing guests to get them to come on. But yeah, as always, I would appreciate so, so much if you could leave a review if you did enjoy this or at least leave like a star rating review. Um, And let me know. You can always send me a DM over on Instagram. I'm at nutrition.by.helena. Tell me if you enjoyed this. Tell me if you've got any questions or suggestions for future episodes. I always absolutely love hearing from you. And of course, I will put links to where you can find Beth in the show notes and also links to how you can work with me if you would like to in the show notes as well. And I'm filling up quickly, but I do have a couple of spots left in my calendar if you would like to join me for gestational diabetes coaching, which is a six-week program where we do weekly calls, you get fortnightly meal plans, and we get 
uh, daily messaging support as well. So you just never feel like you're alone on your gestational diabetes journey. You get basically full handholding so that I can tell you what to eat that's going to work for your blood sugar and your lifestyle and your preferences so that you can actually eat food that you enjoy. And yeah, you don't have to just be second guessing all of those food decisions and things like that. So please do reach out if you would like to hear more about that. And of course, as I said before, let me know of any other guests you want to see on the podcast, any topic ideas you might have. I mean, I've got plenty, but I always love hearing yours as well. But yeah, that's it from me. Um, Yeah, like I said, I really hope that you enjoyed listening to this and have a great day wherever you are. Bye. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please make sure that you subscribe or hit the plus button so that you can get new episodes delivered straight to your podcast app every week. And if you did find this episode useful, I would appreciate it so, so much if you could leave a rating and review or share it with a friend. It helps me reach more people so that I can help them take some of the stress out of gestational diabetes too. And if you want to keep learning about all things gestational diabetes, head to my website to find all the ways that I can support you. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Bye.